Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shobna Xavier, and I hope you're safe and well wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we are joined by Zanita Carrick, an assistant professor of religious studies and cultural heritage at the University of Amsterdam, to discuss her new book, Bosnian Hajj, Literature, Multiple Paths to the Holy, <clears throat> published by Edinburgh Press in 2023. This important study maps out the understandings of Hajj and Islamic geography by Bosnian Muslim authors who wrote in different genres from the 16th to the 21st centuries. It captures how Hajj was imagined and constructed in relation to cosmology, ritual, Sufi saints, and political and temporal realities, while remaining unchanged in other ways. The book generatively theorizes geographies in relation to mobility, but also in relation to emotion, body, and embodiment, materiality, and the sacred. Carrick also situates a story of Bosnian Muslims um, in relation to Hajj and Islamic geography. The book will be of interest to scholars of Bosnian studies, Islamic studies, especially those with interest in pilgrimage and ritual studies. In our conversation today, Carrick and I spoke about how to think of the archives, methodological approaches to engaging texts such as travelogues, Sufi pilgrimage practices, and much more. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Zanita Carrick about her new book, Bosnian Hajj Literature, Many Paths to the Holy. Hi, Janita. Thank you so much for joining us in the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast to discuss your new book, Bosnian Hajj Literature, Multiple Paths, Paths to the Holy. How are you doing today? Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very well here in the rainy Berlin. Uh-huh. Thanks. Um, I know there's a lot of changes and stuff going on, so I super appreciate you making the time to connect with us and we have a time difference. But um, uh, you probably know on the podcast, we have a tradition to ask a little bit about what your intellectual journey was and perhaps what led you to write this particular book. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess 
like the background of of this book of the writing of this book is also kind of connected obviously connected to, to my own personal history um so this book started uh or was supposed to be um a literary study um of bosnian travelogues uh, more specifically, a uh, literary study of Bosnian um, Hajj travelogues. However, when um, I started doing the research, when I started kind of digging uh, the archives and, and libraries to see what's there, I realized that, um, first of all, there is um, plenty of literature from the 20th century, which is in the form of travelogues. Uh, not so much in uh, the periods before that. A um, couple of amazing travelogues, but um, not not many in number. On the other side, what I noticed is that there is uh, a large number of different genres and different texts which deal with Hajj in, from different angles, not necessarily in the shape and in the form of, of a travelogue. Um, all of that literature, all of these texts kind of uh, shaped um, what I call Hajj discourses. Um, and I realized that dealing with or focusing only on Hajj travelogues um, would be quite narrow and it wouldn't really fully represent what Hajj meant for Bosnian Muslims, both pre, pre-modern and, and modern Muslims. Um, so in that way, it kind of led me to, to, first of all, consider this wide range of literature. But then it led me to, to certain challenges as well. So one of these challenges was uh, the fact that uh, looking into all kinds of writings about the Hajj um, also, um, in a way, um, did not, um, was, was not in, in a way, like looking into, into all these kinds of different texts led me to, to, to see how these, talk, these texts were not really appreciated um, by different generations of historians or um, simply by, by a wider readership. Um, so there was definitely a bias and a certain type of a prejudice against um, like simple writings about the Hajj or what we consider to be simple like itineraries on Hajj or uh, religious treatises on Hajj. So there were like different types of prejudice um, related to these types of texts and they simply avoided um, researchers' attention. Um, and that again, kind of shaped and, and formed the way um, I looked into uh, my research as a whole, uh, realizing that I cannot really observe this literature only in the light of literary studies or literary criticism, but that I have to actually see the um, religious um, dimensions which are obviously behind um, these texts. Um, and then obviously like we write the books, but also books write us. Um, so I moved around a lot um, not only physically, I also moved around um, academically and intellectually, I guess. Um, so it led me to kind of explore um, the boundaries of my research uh, within the area studies, but also as they connect to um, other fields like Islamic studies or um, how basically my research falls within the larger umbrella of Islamic studies. But it also kind of crosses over with uh, religious studies and um, and so on. Um, so I would say that the final product is something which is quite different from what I started with. Um, but um, I hope it, it it was the right way. I love this idea of the book writing us because I think one <laughs> of the things I really appreciated was this like question about 
place belonging and shifting and how the Hajj serves as a mediator of all these things across time and space, which you do in the body of the chapters. Um, I'm really interested in your archives and your method of like finding these archives because I'm so amazed with the diversity of sources across time that you've been able to engage with pre-modern and modern. Um, so how did you go about this? Were there, I imagine, challenges? Um, it's, you know, and some sometimes you write that these were personal archives, like people had things, right? Um, and others, I would imagine, were um, archived in spaces, like official institutional spaces. And of course, this is set against a context in Bosnia where there was a war that interrupts archives, which is really complicated and fascinating. So I wonder if that factored into any of the challenges of accessing some of the sources you you use in the book. So basically, um, my first uh, my first steps in, in the research, uh, the first steps in kind of collecting the material uh, were obviously through the lenses of a highly curated um, travel of literature, which I could find, for example, in anthologies um, published throughout the 20th century. So some of this uh, literature was already in a way curated and presented to the wider audiences. So that was like the first step. Like, obviously, I had to look into travelogues of, of for example, Muhammad Kripov, uh, travelogues of uh, Yusuf Livniak and, and, and others. But then as you kind of go further, um, you kind of realize that this is just like the tip of the iceberg. And the rest of the material was um, spread out in a perhaps a little bit haphazard way, like in, in different um, types of institutions, as you correctly said. Um, so with some institutions, it was pretty straightforward. Um, you know, Gazi Husserl Library in, in Bosnia was, was like the key institution or one of the key institutions. Um, also, I, obviously, the, uh, the Suleimania Library in, in Istanbul. Um, I also used the material uh, which um, comes from, uh, for example, uh, Al-Azhar Library in, in Cairo. But some of the, some of the writings um, do not really exist either in this like curated um, anthologies or in this set of, of very highly uh, set lists of, of, of literary texts, neither in, in the official institutions, but um, you kind of come across it once you um, start talking about your research. So as I talked about my research, as I wrote about my research in, um, in Bosnian uh, newspapers, uh, people would kind of contact me and say, you know, there is like this... Um, Travelogue. I mean, it's not published. Travelogue had travelogue from my grandfather or my grandma. Uh, it hasn't been published. Uh, would you kind of look at it? Um, so I think that was like probably the most interesting part of, of the research because you. It's really unexpected. It's also quite private and intimate because someone is letting you in, into their um, space. Something sometimes um, I was not even able to see these manuscripts because at the last moment um, the family would decide not to show the travelogue or the itinerary to me because uh, they considered it to, to be the um, to be kind of reserved only for the eyes of the family and, and so on. So um, there were like all kinds of stories uh, related to that. Um, so all in all, I would say it's um, it made me also realize that what we see as archive is actually like much wider uh, than what is has been in a way officially um, 
set or uh, what has been officially created. So archive can be something which is much, much wider and broader. I love that. And I think you talk about that in the introduction of you publishing the story in the newspaper and people writing to you, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, how do you approach a travelogue or itinerary? Like what, as a text, I wonder if it's different from any other text that you might approach, or do you approach these texts when you're engaging them in the same way that you would, let's say, I don't know, the Quran or something else? Like what are some things that you're looking for? Because I'm really fascinated by your relationship to some of these texts and how you engage them and some of the things that you're teasing out. Um, and especially because a lot of that is also dependent on your relationship, I would imagine, with the authors of the text, right? Knowing that perhaps... I mean, you know, you're negotiating who your audiences were. Sometimes we're debating and thinking about who they were writing for, right? Bosnians back home or, um, and so, and their medium too, like how is an itinerary, like an outline of maybe where they were going different from perhaps, a, you know, a travelogue if it's a little bit more detailed, right? So were those questions that were coming up or was it something you were super comfortable with as you're in engaging in this type of medium? So basically, I started from the premise that um, the Hajj is obviously both the journey and the destination. And so it's journey and the ritual. So that was the main um, goal which I had when I kind of approached the, the material to kind of tease out to see what's there related to both the, the journey and, and the ritual. Um, obviously, it the material I worked with was um, quite different and quite varied and I could not always find both dimensions uh, with the travelogue obviously one expects to find both uh, the descriptions of the journey and obviously the descriptions of of the Hajj rituals um, so the the material was like really in in some parts of overwhelming so um, I would say that what ended up in a book is um, a much smaller amount of uh, what has been actually left out. And uh, obviously there is always something which you regret not putting in the book. And so in some parts, I have to be very honest, like in some parts, I tried to uh, include something which is extraordinary, which is um, quite unusual, something which I, I thought would um, present the, the novelty of, of, of the uh, ritual and the journey. Um, in some other parts, however, I wanted to, to just um, demonstrate how um, there is something which is particularly common uh, for the Bosnian Hajis. Um, and something which can be found in different travelogues, but, you know, you have to kind of include that in an in exemplary um, case. So I would say that it really depended on what I wanted to to show and, and prove. Um, but in, a, in any case, um, I would say that the majority of um, things are still being kind of left out of, of the book because it's just like it's the nature of, of the genre. You can't include everything. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And yeah, you have so much information already in the book that could have been other chapters as well. Um, uh, most of our, or maybe some of our listeners may not know the context of Bosnia or, you know, because um, there's a particular reality here that I think that's also important that makes kind of the routes that you're mapping to Mecca and Medina really important. So there's like important geographical story that's happening that's layered with politics. Um, so I wonder if you could situate a little bit about this. You talk a little bit in your introduction, the Bosnian context, Bosnian Islam. And then that really situates the importance of why this Hajj and this ritual and these maps and routes are important to the story of Bosnia as well. So, 
So basically, I wanted to focus on the um, South Slavic speaking Muslims um, from a region which was or traditionally called Bosnia. Um, and these South Slavic um, speakers uh, who are Muslim, um, the, the words I used for them were both Bosnian Muslim and Bosniak. Um, using the term Bosniak, uh, I think is really important because it um, denotes the not only the historical dimension, but also the contemporary um, desire of Bosniaks to kind of self-determine and, and self-identify um, and self-define as, as Bosniaks. So I use both terms uh, interchangeably. Um, I think the Bosnian context is extremely important um, in terms of the historical changes which happen. So uh, the historical changes which happen are um, basically uh, delineated by wars, delineated by the change of empires. So Bosnia is under the um, Ottoman rule or the rule of the Ottoman Empire um, until um, 1878. Eight or uh, 1908. Uh, so there is the Austro-Hungarian occupation in the 1878, and then there is the annexation, the formal annexation in the 1908. Um, Bosnia is then a part of um, other state structures throughout um, throughout the 20th century. Uh, it's a part of the structure of, of um, uh, the old Yugoslavia or Kingdom of Yugoslavia, then later on it's a part of uh, the uh, Yugoslavia from uh, 1945 onwards. Uh, then obviously there is uh, the um, aggression on, on Bosnia, which uh, in 1992 uh, proclaimed its independence. So all of these things um, are quite relevant in our understanding of uh, how something uh, something both very intimate, but also um, very communal, can be affected by. So the wars, the change of uh, states and, and uh, empire structures, um, all of it affects, obviously, the physical way people go on a hajj. Um, there are years in which people cannot go on a hajj. Um, they are prevented from going there. Then, um, obviously, that affects also how they relate to, to the hajj. So one part of it was, um, so one part of this historical dimension was to show how um, Hajj can be affected, uh, both physically and in, in, in terms of its uh, religious imaginary. But um, I think I also wanted to stress how um, there is something really constant which remains throughout these different periods. Um, and that is the devotion to, towards um, the Hajj. So regardless of which period we're talking about, whether it's the 16th century um, Ottoman Bosnian writings about Mecca, or we're talking about the 21st century blogs, um, you know, published on somewhere on the internet or Facebook or somewhere, um, there is the same uh, identifiable uh, desire to kind of go on a hajj and foster this relationship to, to Mecca and Medina. So I guess the, the whole historical part proves to be um, to kind of show both the change and continuity in, in some ways. Yeah, which is like amazing to see because your chapter one starts in the 16th century and your conclusion takes us to the pandemics. <laughs> so the <laughs> multiple pandemics that you also discussed in the different periods as well, which is really interesting to read about the plague and quarantine practices um, and how a lot of that were racialized 
particular ethnic communities as well and how Bosniak Muslims were treated. Um, so yeah, chat, we could get into some of the details. We probably won't be able to get into all of the fantastic details of the book, but in chapter one, you really deal with 16th to 17th century. Um, you're looking at these um, um, Bosnian scholars in the Ottoman Empire who are writing about um, the pilgrimage practice. Um, and they're particularly focused on, as you say, Medina and the Prophet, which I thought was really, really fascinating. And you frame this as... I think the sentience of the prophet, like the idea of like how they're really focused on the feeling and like kind of the presence of the prophet and the way that they're describing it. This is one of the things that really stood out for me. So I know there were three different scholars that are kind of focused in this chapter, but what are some things that you would want readers to know about what you're trying to do in this work and really thinking about um, the title, which is the, the meanings of the sacred? So basically, um, when it comes to this like Bosnian perspective, um, there are I think two two things at play uh, in this particular chapter. So we we now encounter uh, the first treatises on Hajj written by Ottoman Bosnians. So these treatises are written in the genres which are the classical genres of, of Islamic literature. They they are Fabail literature, uh, the Awail, the Awahir, uh, like general treatises on on different things. Um, so just to kind of clarify for the readers, uh, for the listeners, uh, the Fawai literature, for example, is a very, very old classical Islamic genre coming, extending from the, from the 8th century, um, which talks about the virtues of a, of a particular object. So you could write a Fawail on, on anything, like literally anything uh, from the Fawail of, of the Quran to Fawail of uh, the places and, and regions, like very, very famous are and very common are for a while of Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem, regions and uh, uh, like Sham and, and so on. So uh, what we see here, what we encounter here in the 17th century is like late, late 16th, beginning of the 17th century is literally Bosnians writing in these old classical genres. So they're already embedding themselves in, uh, in a long, long Islamic tradition of, of writing. Um, and we kind of have to always keep in, in mind uh, in the background that uh, we're talking about uh, people who have um, been Islamized, who, who have um, accepted Islam uh, rel relatively recently. So they kind of come under the full historical light as people who kind of contribute to the Ottoman learned culture on an equal footing. Um, so that's like this dimension which I really wanted to to show, and they are contributing to the Hajj discourse on a, on, a, on a very equal, on an equal level. So um, the second thing which I wanted to to show is um, how what we see at that point is the setting of the meanings of of the Hajj, um, which the later works are going to kind of use, read, um, and, and some of these arguments are going to come up later as well, in later times as well. Um, all three authors write um, in a Sufi framework, uh, which obviously tells us something about the meaning-making processes. So they do not consider uh, the Hajj as a ritual, um, as only something which um, is an act of obedience, but also they add different types of layers of, of the Sufi meanings to, to the different parts of the rites. Um, so in one treatise, for example, the author is uh, dedicating um, 
his attention to uh, the black stone, for example, uh, imbuing it with um, human characteristics, um, also kind of inverting this anthropomorphic or anthropocentric perspective. So there is like a lot of a lot lot of things going on uh, 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 in this particular treatise. The other author, uh, Hassan Imamzadeh, he is um, dedicating his treatise to the virtues of Medina. Um, he's trying to show how uh, Medina is, is basically the place of love. It's a place of prophetic love. So all of these ideas um, are kind of uh, revolving around uh, not simply just saying like, oh, you know, people should go to Mecca and they should perform duties, but you know, there is something, there's some additional layers uh, to it. Um, and the third part is basically, um, again, kind of related to the first thing. Um, it's basically not only that the Bos Ottoman Bosnians are writing about the Hajj in, in very old classical forms, but they are also trying to kind of present the Hajj in their own contemporary moment, which um, if we kind of recall, uh, they're writing in the 16th century, 16th and, the, 16th and the 17th century, they are also uh, writing in the peak of, of the Ottoman Empire, so to speak, um, and they are actively promoting the Hajj, which basically means that um, they're writing in the service of, of the Ottoman rulers. And that's quite obvious, at least from uh, one of, of these um, writings, where uh, the author, Ali Dada Bosnevi, um, very explicitly praises the Ottomans as the protectors of, of Kaaba, um, as some as as the dynasty which protects the Hajj, and he kind of uh, implores the readers to kind of accept that um, Ottoman um, dominance and, and, and framework. So what we see there is um, perhaps somewhat static, uh, but also quite um, interesting meaning process, meaning-making process, uh, static in a way that uh, the meanings which are presented are um, quite fixed and they're presented as very universal. Um, but we, from a variety of, of these different dimensions, we can actually see that there is an underlying meaning-making processes going on um, un under these different uh, treatises, because none of them is quite similar to the other, and they all present different say, uh, different sides um, of, of the holy. And some of the themes that you're picking up here on materiality, um, on place, body, home, it also carries on to the next chapter where... You start realizing that although people are making these pilgrimages to Mecca, there's also stops in between that are adding further nodes. Um, and of course, I enjoyed this because a lot of this had to do with um, ZRR or pilgrimages to other Sufi scenes, which as we prog see progressively throughout the book, as time passes, there's becomes quite contentious, right? Um, yes. So um what are these relationships then that some, you know, some of these pilgrims, Haji Bosnians were having with different places they were stopping along the way, like Iraq was something, uh, a location that came up um, quite frequently. Um, um, Ibn al-Arabi, I think, in, in Damascus was another figure. And was also interesting to read about how his spot becomes popularized, right? Um, so that was really, I loved reading about that. So um, what were these relationships to Sufi saints? You know, what were they hoping to get going to these places along the way and making it a bigger journey that it wasn't a straight shot to Mecca, that there was mm -hmm. lots of different stops along the way? Yeah, I think it's really great when we look into these pre-modern texts to see how um, the Hajj was not only... Um, 
not only, the journey to, to Mecca and Medina. But it very naturally subsumed other types of journeys and mobilities under um, or within its, its boundaries and within its framework. Um, and none of these different mobilities kind of contradicted each other. So um, for the authors who I deal with in the second chapter, um, who are mostly from the 18th century, uh, for them, there was no contradiction uh, between going to, to Mecca and Medina and stopping by in Damascus, in Cairo, to pay visit to, to the tombs of, of saints and scholars. So there's absolutely no contradiction between these two types of journeys. Um, as a matter of fact, the authors really tried to show um, different facets. And again, we come to this word of, of fadl and fadila and fadail, of virtues of visiting these places. So in some ways, they, they did try to kind of collect, in a way, as many blessings as they could on the way. Um, and also, it was not only, it was uh, obviously Bereka or blessing was the crucial part of visiting the, the saints. But there was also an educational aspect to it, uh, because the authors are really keen on uh, on giving as many inform like as as much as they can about these different places. Um, so they cite the books they read something in. They try to say like, well, this scholar lived here and he did this and he did that. And um, they they're very very interested in all th these different details. So um, in some cases they even um, it seems to me that they rely on this. Um, additional literature, which they read on, on histories and chronicles, they, re they rely on it so much that they sometimes um, incorporate certain details uh, where um, they're not to be seen. For example, uh, one of the authors mentions uh, going to the tomb of Ibn Arabi in Cairo, but the tomb of Ibn, of, of Ibn Arabi is in Damascus. So for me, the only logical conclusion was uh, that he really wanted to put it there in the list of the tombs he visited, even though when it was not really true. Um, so, you know, there, there is a really des desire to kind of put everything there on the paper and, and, and to, to give um, all these infos out there. Um, again, to kind of go back to the Bosnian framework of, of, of this chapter, in all of this, like whether visiting the saints, uh, for Bereka or um, to give information to the readers or, again, going to, to Hajj. Um, Bosnia kind of lurks in the background always. Um, and what I found really interesting is that even in the places of the highest sanctity of the greatest holiness, uh, these Bosnian authors often um, reflect on what it means to... Well, they best basically always reflect on... Um, on their own geographical position related to Mecca and Medina. Um, so sometimes they would express it in, in, in by saying like, oh, well, you know, I'm here, I'm in Kaaba, I'm, I'm close to Kaaba, like my, my heart is full, but the love towards Bosnia still keeps me going, which is really interesting, like how Bosnia kind of pops up in these like places of, of highest sanctity and, and it, it does kind of matter as, as as, as, as a geography in, in the background, which will obviously in the later chapters become even, even more obvious. No, I absolutely love this chapter, obviously. <laughs> <The> <laughs> um, 
chapter three, I think rightly is titled change. And I think this is like in the, in the middle of the book, it's like shifting, right? I think um, in terms of time, we're talking about an interwar period. Things are really looming in the background. I think in the book, you in your conclusion in chapter three, you write it as encroaching modernity, you know, print steamships. Like there's things that are coming that are really signaling change. Um, and then still you have this pilgrimage practice, right? So how is it in light of this particular moment in time? Um, when our, you know, people are still traveling, what is being projected or what kind of anxieties are being evoked in this moment? Because I would imagine all of the, the stuff that's happening externally is also forcing a lot of internal anxieties that we start noticing in subsequent chapters thereof. And that ends up being projected into um, the Hajj pilgrimage. And so this is specifically interwar period, um, which I think is an important historical moment where a lot of things are happening. So what are some things that you're trying to do and how does the Hajj still maintain a significance or what are some things that are, as you're saying, the same, but what are things that are also being shifted in some ways? Yeah. So I would say that the greatest changes which happen in um, in this period, well, one of them obviously is the fact that um, the greatest number of people go on a hajj like so so people go on a hajj in unprecedented numbers this obviously drives up the number of um books writings essays reportages like everything on hajj um together with that goes um we together like what we can see here also are the changes happening in in the arabian peninsula itself um so it kind of affects the way um, people approach Hajj. Uh, they have very, very strong feelings about the new rule in in in, um, in Arabian Peninsula. They um, are very, very opinionated about that. Um, but I would say the, the greatest change of it all is the fact that um, Hajj now becomes, together with Islam, it becomes a, an object of analysis, of dissection, not only by Muslim authors, but also by non-Muslim authors. And this is something which um, has a very strong impact on the way Muslims themselves see Hajj. So um, when Hajj become, when the journey to Hajj becomes an object of the attention of the non-Muslim authors, and often it, it's when we're talking about um, Serb and, and Croat uh, authors, uh, the attention given to Hajj is quite a negative one. Um, so once this happens, once um, the writings about the Hajj become quite overwhelmingly negative, Hajj is presented as um, like a relic, like a, a very um, unusual, like a very unnecessary custom, something which is not really, um, a ritual which is not really suitable for the modern age. Um, and like the descriptions of the Hajj become even worse. Um, once this happens, uh, the Muslim authors have, they feel the need to defend it. So there is what happens in the 20th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, and we don't really have that in the earlier period, is this defensive attitude that Hajj has to be presented, Hajj has to be uh, explained to not only Muslim audiences, but also non-Muslim audiences. And this is the root of a discourse which is, I would say, excellent even today, because it kind of gives rise to, to all kinds of cliches um, and um, paradigms, uh, which depict Hajj as, uh, 
useful, utilitarian, um, something which is very rational as opposed to, um, you know, just simply like a, being a bodily practice or, or something like that. So we have we have the beginnings of the discourse which will affect the way Muslims think about the Hajj and Muslims write about the Hajj. So I think this is the, the crucial change which happens in, in this period, um, together with obviously these technological changes, to, together with, with everything else which happens. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off it was it was really fascinating to just like feel the anxiety right um, and then this is continuing on to i think chapter four where this becomes really post-world war ii right um and there's a lot of things kind of looming in the background um palestine is looming in the background mm-hmm. so there's an interesting kind of i think you frame it as absence of presence like there's an interesting sense that it's there and it's not there or people are avoiding it so there's anxieties mm-hmm. that are projected that way um you have the development of more modern Hajj literature right um and there's also anxieties about non-Muslims visiting or how like non-Muslims are going to think about this place. Um, Orientalist fantasies that are coming up mm-hmm. about that place, I think, is associated with the non-Muslims, like, you know, coming into a place that should be boundaried and protected. Um, and I think the most other important one was just like Islamic reform, like anti-Sufism, that's also, so there are so many things happening, I think, in terms of all these different factors, you really do a wonderful job in this chapter, just like mapping out how all of this is like informing again, how people are relating to Mecca and Medina, how people are journeying to Mecca and Medina, and really what the Hajj is being perceived as. Um, and the emotions is here, what I think is like a really valuable theoretical piece that you're using to kind of extract and work through some of this. So I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about how emotion plays into this and how you feel it's useful as an analytical category to process some of all of these really big changes that are happening historically post-World War II. So basically, the emotion kind of pops up in the fourth and the fifth chapter, um, and it is like a testament to the fact that um, regardless how strong the reformist rhetoric was or reformist slash socialist rhetoric, which was quite dominant in, in the post-Second uh, World War uh, literature, Hajj literature, um, regardless how strong it was with its insistence on the rationality and with its insistence on, on the fact that Hajj has to have a certain type of a um, social purpose in order to be valid, in order to be relevant for the modern age, um, this appearance of um, this constant reappearance of emotion and connected to that obviously body is something which um, tells us obviously how Hajj cannot be just reduced to an idea. 
it's not just a matter of intellect. It's not just a matter of ratio. It's literally like a right which take which takes up one's body, and obviously body produces emotions. Um, so what I did in the fourth chapter, I wanted to present these different discourses which uh, appear in in the post Second World War period, uh, where we have uh, first of all we have these organized Hajj delegations which. Uh, were delegations of people selected by obviously the the uh, the, the socialist um, uh, authorities, uh, people who, who who went to the Hajj and who in a way wrote highly curated, uh, highly censored travelogues, which are still very interesting to and very valuable to kind of read and analyze. Um, so these travelogues had aims to, they had like two aims. One was to uh, basically connect Muslims to uh, Muslims abroad outside of Yugoslavia to kind of present the image, uh, benevolent image of Yugoslavia uh, to to others, especially to to Muslims in in the Middle East. Um, The second use of, of, or the second goal of these travelogues was to uh, in a way portray uh, the benevolence of the authorities towards the local population, how, religion is you know tolerated it, it's still something which can be uh practiced so the, the those are basically the first travelogues which kind of appear in this period then we have obviously the orientalist discourse with um with zuko jumhur who who um goes on a hajj but then you know writes um highly charged very orientalist descriptions of, of uh, Me- mecca and medina and basically gets also huge fame for it for it um, and obviously, we have the dominance of the reformist discourse, which, um, in a way, is related both to the institutional um, structures. Um, so these types of discourses were uh, fostered; they were, in a way, uh, propagated uh, in, in the seventies, in the nineteen eighties. Um, but obviously, we we have to always keep in mind that they were not the only ones, um, since. Uh, there is a sustained presence of the Sufi discourse as well. It's not as present as the reformist discourse, um, but it's also not completely silent. So through the Sufi discourse, again, in, we can see uh, the persistence of other dimensions of looking into Hajj, um, the insistence on emotions, the insistence on certain types of connectivities uh, that bind Muslims in Yugoslavia with other Muslims, and which are not only reduced to the state visits and state delegations, but they are basically connections of the heart. So there are these links which are not that obvious, but they're still kind of, they're underneath. And I would say that the body returns back with the vengeance in in the fifth chapter, you know, with the Bosnian war, where um, literally the the presence of the fighters who lost their limbs um, is something which cannot be ignored or was not ignored in in the Hajj discourses. And, the body is like there and nobody can ignore it. Nobody can really say, you know, body doesn't matter. It's like the the idea which counts when you actually have, you know, people who who lost their limbs uh, in order to defend Islam. So uh, the body is something which kind of becomes really crucial and very central in 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 the later in the latest period. And as you're talking about chapter five, you really tell this important story of Munir. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us. And you start us off on the you know scene in a prison jail and this really vivid, intense dream. Um, mm-hmm. 
And so I'm really fascinated by this idea that emotions serve as mapping points. And I love that. Mm-hmm. So, and in this case, dreams also do, right? Um, so if you could continue what you were saying in relation to this figure, that would be also amazing. So basically, um, the fifth chapter starts with uh, the dream account of Munir uh, Gavran Kapitanovic, who was uh, a member of the Young Muslim Movement, which was banned after the Second World War. Um, and as a member of, of this uh, banned movement, uh, Munir was also sent to prison. So he he wrote, I think, two memoirs. Uh, recounted, recounting his experiences in, in, in these prisons after the Second World War. Uh, obviously, they were published um, only at a later at a later point after um, you know the censorship was was no longer in place. So, in one of them, uh, Munir uh, describes uh, one of the dreams he had when he was lying in a prison uh, in I think 1950. So he talks about a dream he had um, in uh, during Ramadan. He was trying to fast, and um, it was really hard to fast during Ramadan in a prison. So he had to pretend to not fast, but then he would not eat for like 24 hours or, or, or so. So one night he had this dream where um, he was trying to cross the river, and uh, there were snakes coming up to him, and he was afraid he was terrified, but then uh, the snakes kind of passed him by, um, and then he saw the signs to Mecca. And um, that's when he knew that one day he's going to fulfill his dream and and, and actually go to uh, and perform Hajj. So this dream is recounted um, in in his Hajj travelogue, like written 40 44 years later, when he actually goes goes on a hajj um, with his sons. And in this point, um, Munir is already an old man and he is now in, in a wheelchair. So basically there is, again, like the centrality of, of the body, both in the dream account and then in the hajj travelogue. So when he was young, he was in prison, he was he was hungry, he was like fasting for 24 hours, he was tortured, he was, um, and he kind of understood his role in that prison as um, almost like a martyrdom, or like something which kind of approaches that. And then 44 years after that, he is um, in Mecca, he is traveling to to Hajj, and now he's carrying a Bosnian passport. Uh, It's happening in the midst of the war. um, And he is going to Hajj, again in a delegation of men who were chosen uh, to go on a Hajj sponsored by uh, Saudi Arabia in 1994. Um, It was like a very uh, highly publicized event because it, uh, the people who were invited to go on a Hajj in 1994 were uh, those who were wounded wounded in in the warfare, uh, men who, who lost their limbs and Munir was also traveling with them. So in a way, there is this juxtaposition between his frail body because um, he, he's not able to walk, but not because of the war, because of, of his um, age. So there is his body, which is in the wheelchair, and there are these bodies of young men who lost their limbs in the in the war, in the battle. So this imagery is kind of constantly um, there in, 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 in the Hajj uh, travelogue. Um, but the parallel, which is kind of being uh, 
which is underneath all of this is the fact that both Munir um, and these men who who go who, who go on a Hajj and uh, who lost their limbs, both of them kind of suffered for faith. They, both of them, uh, both the, both these men suffered for uh, for Islam in some way. So um, that's kind of how the chapter starts, and it kind of goes, and in order to show the centrality of body uh, for uh, the Bosnian um, Hajj in the war and post-war period. This is such a powerful chapter, like, wow, what a way to also end the book. Um, the conclusion, you take a step back and you bring us to the modern period, um, you kind of context of how things were shifting, particularly during COVID, um, when people couldn't travel to Hajj and how um, Bosnian Muslims were trying to create relationships, maybe digitally or whatnot, um, through um, through that. Um, so what would you say in the moment now are those relationships to the Hajj? Um, are these delegations still going? Um, and what would you also, I guess, want readers, now that we've kind of gone through some of the details of the book, would be a really important takeaway, right? I'm hearing really lots of important ideas about things that are fixed and not fixed, um, mm. the body, the emotion, just really beautiful imagery that's coming up as a way of mapping pilgrimage practices. And so what would you hope our listeners to also take away from this book as the one of them, the significance? There's many significant points, but one of the takeaways. So I would say it would be, like this is something which I always repeat because it, it it's always on my mind. Um, and that is the fact that, you know, the book is over, but the definitely the project isn't over or the way we observe Hajj is not over. Like it's, it's never going to be over. So what I would like to, the readers to kind of, the listeners to um, take from this is um, to kind of observe how um, pilgrimage and other types of rituals, um, they can have this like fixed structure, uh, but that allows them also a certain type of a freedom. So um, the structure of the Hajj is fixed, you know, the rights are there and they, they're not really changing, but the way people approach them, the people, the way people experience them um, is definitely different from, from a period to period, from time to time. And I think it's really important to stay um, in tune or stay attuned to, to what's going to happen with Hajj in, in our times or um, in, in the next 10 or 20 years. So I hear, uh, I'm here thinking about two things. One of them is the um, what's going to happen with uh, the technological aspect of the experience in the Hajj. So we already we've all seen um, the projects which kind of want to center the AI and like the experience of the Hajj. And um, so, what I would be really curious to know is not only how uh, regular pilgrims are going to experience that, but also how this technology is going to kind of um, affect the norm-making processes related to the Hajj as well. Whether they're going to affect them or not, I mean, it's in, in a permanent on a permanent basis, um, I'm not really sure. But what I'm really kind of looking forward to is like this, uh, this creative tension, which I, I believe is already happening. So what's going to happen when, you know, people want to put on goggles and, and just, you know, kind of experience um, the Hajj in, in through that way. So that that's one thing. Uh, the second, and I would say um, a bit more somber uh, image is uh, what's gonna happen with Hajj in terms of the, or in, in light of the climate change. Um, 
I'm not really sure like how um, everything is kind of going to, to revolve in the next 10 or 20 years, but I do believe that the question of nature and the question of human relation to the nature is going to be quite central and quite relevant for, for the pilgrims themselves even. So um, I believe there is going to be a lot of rethinking of the centrality of, of the human body versus you know the, the environment in the context of something as massive, as huge as, as Hajj is. So I would say, I would just like ask ask the listeners to kind of just um, pay attention to what's going to happen, um, and to maybe also look into uh, the history of Hajj and see how what happened in 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 the earlier periods because all of these tensions happened earlier as well, uh, obviously in a different shape and form. Um, so yeah, those are such productive questions to leave us with. And just in terms of the AI dimension and virtual reality, like is going on Hudge on like, I know there's stimulation programs that do Hudge now, which I use in class when I teach. And I often ask students, is this the same or not? And there's a huge debate that unfolds where some will say, no, it's not the same, but it might mean something different to those who have accessibility issues and things like that. But it might also mean something different in an era of climate change when we're really concerned about our carbon footprint and impacting yeah. nature as well. So it's that's really important. So thank you so much. Um, I have to ask you about the cover because um, I absolutely yeah. love it. Um, and it's too bad that our listeners are listening, but you ha they have to get the book and look at the cover because I love it. So did you want to tell us a little bit about the artist who did it? And um, yeah, I think it's fabulous. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. And um, also, I, I always love that question, obviously. Um, so the artist is Elgir Yusufovic, who is uh, a friend of mine and, and a really great artist. So um, we talked about the cover of the book uh, last year. And um, basically, I, I told Elgir about um, a story about these two um, women who went on a Hajj in 1981, who... Uh, in a way, they had like a really interesting story behind one of them. Uh, both of them belonged again to this young Muslim movement. Um, both of them, like one of them was definitely in prison for these activities after the Second World War. And now we're already talking about the 1980s. I think both of them were at that point in their 50s. So they decided to go on a Hajj, but because of the whole you know, baggage which they carried, they kind of think, and they, they were like, well, you know, we don't really want to go by plane for different all range of, of different reasons for all set for different sets of reasons. Um, and they just decide to go on a Hajj by car. But the thing was, like, obviously, they went with their husbands. Uh, but the thing was, the husbands couldn't drive or they wouldn't drive or there was like something implied there. So they, they were just like, well, no problem. Like, we're, we're going to drive. Both of them had like this international driver's license. So they decide to go on a Hajj, to, to go on a Hajj by car. Um, and then they pass through, you know, Istanbul, Damascus, uh, they go through Jordan, they enter Saudi Arabia, and they literally did not have any problem driving through Saudi. Apart from like one place where the policeman told them like to pretend, like to, to kind of put the husband of, of one of them uh, to kind of pretend to drive. Um, so just, just like, so the form is kind of fulfilled, but basically they, they drove through um, all the way up to Mecca. Um, and basically um, they they drove in, in this like vehicle car and I have a, a photo of them like standing in front, front of that car, which is, it's really kind of cute and, and, and also very nostalgic in a way. 
Um, so basically what we wanted to kind of do with this cover is to kind of play with different things. So one of them is obviously driving, two women driving um, through Saudi Arabia, which is something which definitely shocked the readers of their travelogue when it came out in 2014. That that was definitely something which caused like a lot of positive reaction because I think back then in 2014, women still couldn't drive in, in, in Saudi. Um, but they, what we also wanted to do with, with the cover is to show how they come from, uh, they, they do drive to, to Mecca. And uh, the goal is obviously to do the, to perform the Hajj. And they, in their own words, they experience what they call the true brotherhood and unity. Uh, so they use the, the socialist slang to kind of describe um, the religious feeling, which I thought was really amazing. But at the same time, they also never forget where they came from. And that's kind of sim symbolized by these different objects on, on the left, like cathedral, like the uh, Begova Mosque in, in Sarajevo. Um, so the appearance of these objects symbolizes uh, not only their Muslim background, but also the fact that they lived their lives in, in Sarajevo, which is you know the city of, of different people, not uh, Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, and what's also on the cover is uh, the presence of people who, um, you know, other pilgrims, non-Bosnian pilgrims, who definitely pr participated in, in their own uh, pilgrimage uh, experience. It's so cool. Um, so did Elvira do this, per, like, it's his original art for the book cover, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, hopefully you have this printed and framed somewhere in your in your home. Um, it's, oh, it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, you should. It's absolutely lovely. Lovely. I just love their faces. And this is a story of, um, I think, Adija and Safia that you talk about in the introduction, right? Um, yeah. So I just love the expressions on their face and one of them with their head out the window, just smiling. It's just lovely. Um, so that's awesome. Thanks so much for letting us know this background story. Um, I know you've just published the book and uh, you have lots of changes coming up, which are really exciting so hopefully you're taking time to enjoy and celebrate um but is there any project that's looming in the background that you're hoping to work on in the future or what are you going to pursue some of these questions around geography and pilgrimage and materiality and placemaking more or shift in other places so currently i'm trying to explore more different forms of devotional piety um among the early modern ottoman ottomans in general um, I do, I'm, I am always interested in the questions of continuity. So um, I would love to see how these different forms of devotional piety extend up to the modern age as well. Um, and I am currently working on a project of devotional piety as um, a way of dealing with, let's say, reality of, of our modern age. So um, again, I would say what, what remains kind of constant in my work is um, I like to, to observe um, religious phenomena in, in a longer, in, in like a long durée perspective. So I, I really hope that's um, going to kind of remain um, in, in future as well. Amazing. Well, I wish you all the best the next few months as um, you go on your own journey. Um, I hope it's a good one. And I really hope our listeners will pick up the book. Um, and I really appreciated this book and really loved the work that you did. And I took away a lot theoretically. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and spending time with us. And I hope I'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Shabana. Thank you so much.
And that was my conversation with Zanita Carriage about her new book. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, take good care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.